This is Coda Radio, episode 379 for September 14th, 2020. Hello, friends, and welcome to Coda Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show taking a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and the world of technology. This episode is brought to you by a cloud guru. Tech moves fast, and so does ACG. Their courses and labs are always online and obsessively updated. Plus, they curate all the news on AWS, Kubernetes, Linux, and more. Stay up to date at a cloudguru.com. My name is Chris, and joining me triumphantly, is my co-host, Mr. Dominic. Hello, Mike. Hello, Chris. I have ascended from my uh, aquatic grave. I come to you with <laughs> Windows Azure. I'm sorry, Microsoft Azure. I'm sorry, just Azure. Damn it, stop changing the name. Did you uh, get the barnacles washed off? <laughs> I did, and I actually, while I was down there, I fa- found my old purple HTC Windows Phone 8. Hey, you know, those are great back in the day, man. You know, that's going to take over the world. You just wait. Uh, how are you? How is Florida? How is the life? How is the Dominic household? All of those things. Well, Florida is 4,000 degrees, but not nearly as hot horribly as the Pacific Northwest, of course, in California. Yeah. That's a shame. I'm tired. I, you know, I tried to code into the night last night, something I have not been able to do for several years now without horrible repercussions in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. I have also fought that one. Also, because sometimes now, just more often than not, I can't sleep. Yep. That does stink because it does put my whole day kind of like in a funk. Like, I'm just not as effective. Today, I actually tried to avoid that. I actually stayed at the studio last night because the RV is way, way, way far away, like like two out, two hours or something far away. So I stayed here thinking, well, I'll save myself the exhaustion of driving for like four hours that day and I'll just crash here and I'll get a good night's sleep and then I'll hit the ground running and I'll take off in the afternoon. Of course, the reality is I didn't sleep. For like a wink, like I maybe got maybe got an hour or two, maybe you know, it's just it, it is horrible. But you, the day goes on, and uh, I just deploy my caffeine strategy, which is caffeinate hard, caffeinate often. And the real key to my caffeine success is I catch it before the last dosage is wearing off, and you have to consider digestion time. So you got to know what your own digestion time is, so that way you can intake more caffeine before the last take wears off. And if you don't get it right, you know it's can be too much. That is true. And it's also so I started with coffee, which I haven't been drinking. uh, So that's great. But I'm back on the coffee wagon. So sadness. Oh, I don't know. There's something nice about it, too, though. Well, you know, and well, for me making coffee, it would be easy to like turn on a coffee pot. But no, we (laughs) we can't do that. We have to boil just enough water in a tea kettle and they get a single serve French press as we measure out as though we were dealing with nuclear physical material, <laughs> the exact amount of beans, which, of course, had to be freshly ground. Right, right. Which is loud and dirty and a mess. And that thing's always a pain in the butt to clean up. And then in my case, the four year old turns around and yells at me because, of course, the grinder is louder than Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. He says, Daddy, what are you doing? Right. There we <laughs> go. What's the matter with you? What's wrong with you? <laughs> That's sort of how life is in my place, too. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> it sounds about right. How are you? How is everybody? 
<laughs> just, you know, um, kind of trying to avoid the smoke unsuccessfully. There's literally absolutely nowhere to go. I'd have to probably go to Montana. I mean, I'm not sure how far away, I'd, how far east I'd have to go to get away from it at this point. It's so thick and it smells like wood smoke everywhere. Like my clothes now smell like wood smoke. And and yet it's also kind of cool in a way, right? Because it's different and it gives me a good excuse to stay inside and be on my computer. <laughs> yes, because you need lots of convincing for that. <laughs> right. It doesn't take much. And you know what? They say stay inside. It's uh, unhealthy air quality. So I just follow an advice, you know. <laughs> you are doing the prudent, responsible thing. So we had a couple of bits of feedback. Jordan wrote in, he went over to coder.show slash contact. And he says, hi, Chris West in pain, a.k.a. Michael. Uh, I'm a full-time C++ developer at a small company where I do cross-platform application development and maintain a massive legacy code base. I can feel the weight of that sentence. Oh, man. Jordan, I feel your pain there. He says, anyways, I wanted to throw in my two cents on your latest conversation around C++. C++ is one of the hardest programming languages to learn. Don't forget about templating in C++, which is particularly another programming language altogether. While many people in the C++ community are trying hard to make C++ more accessible and safer, things like undefined behavior, defaults, and antiquated functionality within the standard library make it an uphill battle. And some fixes would require breaking ABI, something the standards committee cannot agree on doing even 10 years down the road. Now, there are nice benefits to the standardization process and improvements in C++ with each new standard. Not fast enough nor ambitious enough to solve the fundamental issues, though, many developers face on even a day-to-day basis, such as package, dependency management, memory management, and code correctness. Many have tried and failed to make C++ better from the inside, which I think is why we have so many spinoffs that are meant to be better replacements for C++. I hope to see Rust and Go continue to replace C++ code, not only for my sanity, but because it's also just more fun to develop in Rust and Go. They let you really focus on the problem you're trying to solve instead of a bunch more problems you now need to solve as well. That is a decisive take from Jordan. Yeah. Decisive. And I think we are seeing that, right? I think we're seeing particularly Rust is gaining a lot of... uh traction sort of in a way yeah i don't know it's a little weird but c++ is a beast with a lot of legacy there's no doubt yeah the other conversation that came up in the community was well what about when we're talking about operating system components like in the you know launch of amazon bottle rocket you know this is a sign that sometimes algorithms work because on youtube a video came up that just seemed like it was a perfect response to the conversation starting our community about, well, maybe maybe we should all adopt Rust for lower language operating system components. And I found this audio of Linus, who was asked a similar question at an event, and this was his response about why he still prefers C. So I have to say, I'm kind of old-fashioned, and I'm really interested. I, the reason I got into Linux in the, or operating systems in the first place was I really love hardware. I love tinkering with hardware. I'm I, not in the sense that I'm a hardware person. I, giving me a soldering iron is a bad idea. But I, I like interacting with hardware from a software perspective. And uh, I have yet to see a language that comes even close to C in that respect. It's not just that C, you can use C to generate good code for hardware. It's that if you think like a computer, writing C actually makes sense. I mean, and, and I think the reason it works that way is the people who designed C 
designed it at, at a time when you, I mean, when compilers had to be simple and the language had to be kind of geared towards what the output was. So when I read C, I know what the, the assembly language will look like. And that is something I care about. Not that I feel like Linus is wrong. It's just that he's not 100% right anymore either. And it's a bit of an old school take, but still a valid one. Uh, I always hate this argument because no matter what, there, you know, there's no good way to capture all the nuance in a 45 second, one minute response, right? Taking a step back, right? There, There's the question of like the low levelness and the memory management stuff. Right. And there's the question of C++ is just like super old. Right. And it's got like a lot of like the ABI stability uh, comment that Jordan mentioned is actually kind of a big deal. Although it's one of those things that if you were coming from a different environment or frankly, if you're not insane. And although if you listen to coding podcasts, you're probably pretty deep into it. So maybe you are the set who actually like understands what that means. Quick detour, right? Committing to ABI stability. It was like a huge problem for Swift because it meant that you basically couldn't change a large percentage of the foundational stuff in the language which is why Swift did not do it for a long time. In fact, I don't think they have done it yet, uh, but I'm not, I am not super up to date on the Swift community. I can't disagree with Linus psychologically, so I'm going to say he makes great points. But, you know, I've been kind of tooling around with C++ the last few weeks. There are reasons I do not recommend it to clients, right? There are reasons I have a pretty substantial client who... One of their projects, when they have time and budget, is always like, we are wanting to move our C++ stuff into .NET Core. One, because you can you know, do all kinds of fun stuff where you call the C++, right? You can either make it a binary and call into it, or thank God for FFI in most cases. It's just a hard language to work with. And like the challenge I've very recently had, people who follow me on Twitter might have noticed I've been doing like some weird game dev thing. Not my C++, and your C++ are going to be very different, very likely, right? The style, like I do not use templating because I think it's crazy evil magic. This is a good point. Right. And like I write C++ from the perspective of I wish it was Objective-C, which is insane because they're like totally different language philosophies, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I, also, I also write, you know, like a check and fill out IRS forms with brackets. I get them back all the time. They're like, sir, <laughs> sir, just give it up. Okay. That's beautiful. It it really is sad. I mean, Jordan, more power to you, man. You're yeah, right. Every day, large code base. There's got to be some deep legacy demons in that baby. Oof. Yeah, massive legacy code base is what he said. <laughs> Somebody suggests that as a as a title. That's just a monster. Eldritch code base over there, right? So, if Steve T said, yeah, "Great episode," but I had a question. What really is a quote unquote safe language? which of course is a huge rabbit hole, but I guess a fair question. We didn't really define it when we were talking about Rust and what makes it valuable. You know, probably better to link to the explanation in the show notes, but there's several things that make a language safe. You have memory safety, obviously, which is a big one because that prevents things like buffer overflows, null pointer differences, lots of little things that have got us in trouble for years and years <laughs> are generally caught. By languages like Java, too, not just Rust. It's not just a Rust thing, but Rust is one of the newer, hotter things that seems to be offering it. I'll link to um, um, Michael Hicks's list of several different de definitions of memory safety because there are several definitions of it. And um, 
that's probably a pretty good starting point for people who are kind of glancing that there's something that people keep dropping about Rust, something people like about it, something about being a safe language. Check out the links in the show notes. Yeah, everything you said is super correct, right? Uh, but just the Java reference, what Rust gives you that Java does not is that it is a, I hate, I hate this high-low dichotomy, but like lower level, i.e. more performant programming language. So you get the safety and you get the C++ C type speed. Now, I also want to add, because pet peeve time, if you are writing Rust and you are throwing the unsafe keyword every other line in your code, you are effectively defeating the compiler's safety mechanisms. Do not do that. If you have unsafe, I don't know, I would say like more than 10% of your code, you're probably doing something wrong. <laughs> and I, I know that's a little bit of a spicy take because that's... No, I think it's... Yeah, I think it's... Well, the unsafe keyword is controversial and how, how it should or shouldn't be used. I used to be like, ah, just get it done, right? Hackity hack, hack, hack. I've suffered enough that... I kind of don't like it. I mean, you have to use it, like particularly when you're interoperating with stuff, you're probably going to have to use it. But it's definitely a code smell. Uh, having said that, Rust is amazing. We should all thank Mozilla and find ways to give them money because they need money. No, no kidding. But they did make Rust, right? My hot take is it's the summer of Rust. I really, I mean, it's been building, so it's not just this summer, but I think the iceberg became much more like pronounced above water, like all of a sudden, boom, here's this big rust iceberg. And now all of the stuff below is kind of coming to surface. It just seems like it's been a big, big, big summer. Right. I agree. We're all going to be dancing to the sound of the rusty trombone. <laughs> a cloud guru.com. A cloud guru is known for their hands on labs. It's the real way to learn. ACG is the leader in hands on cloud learning. And you guys know the only way to lock in a new skill is by doing. That's why ACG provides hands-on labs, cloud Linux servers, and much more. You learn the tricks, the nuances, and the gotchas before you test and before you go to work. And why not check out all the other great content over at a Cloud Guru while you're there? Get your hands cloudy at a cloudguru.com. One of the reasons I say it is sort of the summer of Rust is... Right after we wrapped up last week's show, we found a whole batch of stories about different large tech companies proclaiming their newfound love for Rust. We saw that Apple has job postings open, specifically looking for Rust developers. Like, Here's a bit of the description. Quote, the performance and security of the systems we build are critical. We interface directly. This is Apple, by the way. We interface directly to low-level Linux kernel interfaces using asynchronous I.O. and threads to distribute the workload. Following a very successful first foray into Rust, we are migrating an established code base from C to Rust and building new functionality primarily in Rust. So we're hiring. <laughs> uh, and Microsoft, a similar story making the case about using Rust for low-level operating system components. And a lot of this is all coming to a head in the summer. So it's, it's, I really do think it has been the summer of Rust, and I, I have been worried about making the show too much about Rust. But then when is the right time to talk about a language, except for when it's exploding like this? When Rust is actually solving a problem, right? If, like a, a very serious problem of, you know, you mentioned some of the buffer overflow stuff, which can lead to insane security issues. Taking a step back, if Apple and Microsoft, and I happen to know for a fact that Google also uses Rust some, are all kind of jumping on this, 
they're not like us in you know the telegram chat room or whatever where we get swept up in things and try everything out they're making large scale business decisions which means that these big corporations are probably going to also be committing code back to the rust community right developing uh, cargo packages which for those who don't know uh, cargo is um it, it's the npm of rust right so i i think we should just embrace our new rust overlords <laughs> that's that's my take all right so while we're uh, on the topic of apple uh, the Epic and Apple battle continues with another go forward, step back kind of situation. Apple threatened to disable the sign in with Apple for Epic Games. Just such a weak flex. I'm sorry. But. Oh, man. I mean, what what I think is so pathetic about it is Apple just basically got this deployed and is already leveraging it to punish develop- a developer. Like that didn't take long. Yeah, Apple uh, isn't sh- isn't shy about putting you in your place when you're a developer for them, right? So this really sucks uh, as a consumer, as a user of the iOS platform, because I really wanted sign in with Apple to solve this problem of everything needs an account and everything has to send me sp- spam crap email. And I got to be honest with you, quite literally every single time I've been offered to just sign in with Apple. I have anytime I've been needing like to set up a new service. I just I just have done that. It's so much better from a consumer standpoint. And so it's really disappointing to see this happen because now I have to take that into consideration. Now I have to take into consideration that Apple could pull the plug for some reason down the road when some goalpost has been moved. And now all of a sudden I'm caught in the middle of some sort of dispute. It reminds me of like when I had Dish TV and they would have a dispute with the TV providers, and now what, you know, like my local channel wouldn't be on the television network anymore. Like, well, I'm still paying the same price. <laughs> I, I really don't like this. Uh, I don't like this from a developer leverage standpoint because you shouldn't use your login infrastructure as a way to punish people. That just seems evil. And I don't like this from a user standpoint. This is pretty crap. Now, I should mention, Apple kind of retracted this in a weird way. They said that they will extend them a indefinite extension for signing with Apple. So it's not kind of like it's not saying it's resolved, but we're going to indefinitely extend this offer for you to continue to use sign in with Apple. And that's where it's at now. I mean, this this one, this one really got to me because it's so stupid and petty. <laughs> How about the other one where like the EU tax and they're passing that tax on to individual developers now? It's like, come on, guys. What are you, what are you doing? It really does seem to be that they perceive the relationship such that the developer is deriving more value from the platform than they are from the developer. Do you get what I mean? Like they must think that the way that the the value model works is that they're kind of doing developers a favor by shipping their apps on the iPhone. You know, it reminds me of, I don't know what getting a driver's license was like in other states, Uh but when I was a young in New Jersey, they constantly stressed you when you're taking the driving exams. Driving is a privilege, not a right. I don't even if you buy a car, it's a privilege. It's a privilege. Yeah. Which is their way of saying, I'll take this right off you. Right. Mm -hmm. This is kind of like, I guess, writing code in Xcode and for iOS is a privilege. It's a whole new way of thinking about developer relations (laughs) that I'm pretty sure (laughs) other companies would not agree with. Maybe they'd like to have this model, but yeah. And didn't seem to really be the bargain when the App Store launched. It kind of seemed like the App Store was like the thing that sold the iPhone for like almost a decade. Well, and they used to like help out developers and like it, it's, it's so weird how I guess power corrupts, right? 
And also, they kind of need developers like totally on board right now because they're going through a massive platform transition. What is happening? Are we combining two things that shouldn't be combined? Does Epic really represent developers? Uh, it's not just Epic, though, right? Epic is the easy case. Because, one, Epic has not exactly tried to de-escalate this situation either. No, 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 no. no. So, but like this... All right, so there, there, there's like the problem here for Apple, from their perspective, I'm sure, is not that they're being mean. It's that Epic isn't some guy in his, you know, spare bedroom in Florida that they can just roll. Right. It's... uh. It's another billion dollar company. Right. Yep. And a high profile one with a very popular product. Right. And Tim Sweeney's uh, got some personality quirks that make him a difficult person to be in a conflict with. <laughs> and nobody at Apple has that problem. So. <laughs> well, and Tim Cook just like apparently hates him. Right. Like, I don't even understand. It, it, like, again, if you haven't, you have to read those emails that came out in the court filing. It's weirdly personal. Isn't that something? Yeah, it's, there's some personality conflicts. Uh, but all right, so let's ask the, the $64,000 question that we don't have in the doc, but I think is relevant. Would you caution our listeners, particularly like younger folks who are you know, wanting to get into development, to maybe avoid Apple's platforms? Well, I think certain business models should consider it. If you're like the hey business model, you probably better think about it real hard. Again, another outspoken uh, tech founder with an interesting personality who took Apple on, right? If Ben Thompson is to believe to be believed, he has received many dozens of other stories from developers that just were afraid to come public. And I, I can buy that. And so I would say to a degree, you know, I don't think we should kid ourselves. I don't think this is a story that is pervasive amongst the customer base of iPhones. I think it's well known amongst a small percentage and maybe now a little more because of Fortnite. But I'd say so a lot of businesses are totally fine, especially if you're comfortable playing within Apple's rules. But if you have something that skirts around or kind of relies on a loophole or maybe takes advantage of a gray area or kind of hopes Apple lets this one slip by, you are 100% screwed. It's just, it's just not going to happen. Maybe the web is a better platform for you. Yeah, I'm sort of hoping that like Apple comes to their senses a little bit like and I understand it's different people and things have changed and whatever, but this does feel like it's like your old friend who's like just gone nuts for a while. Like you hope that he wakes up, but they don't seem to be waking up, right? Like they, in fact, they seem to be doubling down. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. I'm. Yeah. <laughs> That's what makes it so fascinating to watch. How does a king lose its crown? Like how when somebody makes when a company like Microsoft or Google or Apple make it to the top, what causes them to fall? piss off the eu enough i mean that's that's probably how this ends right <laughs> i don't know i don't know apple may just buy them out <laughs> we bought belgium no <laughs> yeah, offense right. to people in belgium <laughs> i kid that's i just i just think it's fascinating to watch you know a trillion dollar plus company they have to sabotage themselves in the name of profits uh in the name of services revenue i made a prediction on this show years ago i've said it before it's all gonna be i said if you're a developer for apple you're going to have the game change on you as they get more and more serious about services. And because that app store equals services in their quarterly results, they got to milk that sucker. That's the game on Wall Street. I keep using the uh, the metaphor of sharecroppers, but it is it does feel like <laughs> that. It, it's not great. So let's cheer ourselves up. Uh, apparently, I was right in 2013. I want to set the stage. This was September of 2013. So not not surprisingly, here we are in September again. Listen, he's. Uh, let me pull up the exact date, because this is actually kind of interesting, isn't it? 
we released this episode, episode 67 of Coda Radio, on September 16th, 2013. Here we are on September 14th, 2020. So that's pretty great. And this is typically around the time Apple has its traditional event. And I think this was when they announced the iPhone 5S. So that's how long ago this was. And you had a hot take that you just kind of tossed out there in 2013. And we had a listener go back and listen to the back catalog and say, hey, you got to check this clip out. The most interesting thing that's happening now with Apple and the iPhone isn't, you know, what they do with the colors, isn't what they do with the design or the fact that the background now has parallax. I think what is interesting is you have one company who is making their own chip based on the ARM design reference, but um, I I find that to be a huge, huge advantage. I mean, I I, got to imagine now Samsung gets close, right? But they don't they don't own all of the bits like Apple does. Uh, top to bottom, and um, you so gotta, my crazy conspiracy theory is that this is step one in a five-step plan, where step five is Mac start running Apple's own ARM chips. Oh man, I, I hope not. Damn, you called it from the iPhone 5s. Well, I'll take the W. Yeah, we were both uh, spot on. I think not to toot my own horn, but I was spot on about their CPUs were going to be their secret sauce that was going to be a huge deal. Yeah, yeah, you were too. I just yeah. You were spot on about their desktop switching over to ARM processors. Now, that's interesting because today it was announced that NVIDIA for 40 billion US dollars is acquiring ARM holdings. And this is massive. They're buying it from SoftBank, and it's clearly going to change the industry. This will probably be one of the biggest tech stories of 2020. And they seem to be, NVIDIA, seem to be positioning this as a big AI play which I think is interesting. Got to get those buzzwords. Yeah. Yeah, it's all about AI and their press releases. In fact, uh, here's, here's a bit of a quote from one. AI is the most powerful technology force of our time. It is the automation of automation, where software writes software. That's according to the NVIDIA CEO. Uh, he goes on, together, NVIDIA and ARM are going to create the world's premier computing company of the age of AI. All about AI. Um, but I think... Early? I mean, I'm sure it's a component of it, bringing NVIDIA's GPUs together with ARM CPUs and putting them in low-power situations where they can do a lot of on-premise, on-location processing would be extremely valuable. I mean, you're seeing that play out in cell phones already for for your selfies. But it feels like to me what, what NVIDIA is really doing here is focusing on the shiny and exciting because they don't really have a full fleshed-out plan yet. They got vague details, so you refer to something that's vague and people will be like, oh, that's great. That's going to be amazing. And they'll make up scenarios like I just did. Meanwhile, they're like, we just had to make this play because somebody else was going to buy them and we wanted it to be us, right? That's got to be what happened here. And they moved as fast as they could. They had a sticky issue regarding some Chinese owners (laughs) and they kind of sort of quote unquote resolved the matter. And then as soon as they did that, the deal went through, even even on a, it was almost finished on a Sunday. I mean, it was a big rush, it seems like, from the outside. And then they talk about AI because that's pretty non-committal. Yeah, I mean, I would give them, I mean, I, I know I put the crack about it being a buzzword. I would give them a little more credit. So Microsoft had that Spheres thing. Was that what it's called? It was like their system on a chip or? Yeah, the Azure Sphere. It's like a shipping product now. 
a big weakness of that product and a big weakness of people trying to deploy AI system AI systems in general is that they tend to always rely on cloud services to do the actual, you know, machine learning and processing. Right. Um, and this is an area that actually, like, I know I mention Apple all the time, but Apple has actually done a lot of great on, on device AI stuff, not, or I'm sorry, ML stuff and not exactly like the best ML stuff, but the fact that they're not constantly calling servers is impressive. If NVIDIA can pull this off, which is a big, 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 you know, HTML1 blink tag if. <laughs> yes. They could very well, due to the uh, embedded AI market, which is a term I just made up, but what I mean is small systems on, you know, single single chip computing. What they have done to basically, you know, CUDA, right? Let's talk about CAD. A thing we don't talk about much on this show because we're not, like, gaming-oriented is specific games but more importantly cad programs are programmed to uh, cuda which is nvidia's like proprietary weird whatever graphics thing which means that they're kind of the leader in the graphics market even though we're a and d lovers here that's because we tend to run linux and it's what actually drives a huge reason why nvidia develops a driver for linux yeah and you know system 76 a sponsor of this show uh, and we're both customers of they they build laptops and desktops specifically for the CUDA market. Yep. It's a big sector. It's a big sector. I mean, it is the leader in that space, right? To to the everlasting shame of Mac people who had to switch to Windows or or, or hopefully picked up a System 76 computer to do their CAD work. Right. Because um, they can't. So you can't get NVIDIA on Mac because apparently they had a nasty breakup. Again, blinking F tag. If they can actually do this. And I'm I'm, I'm a little skeptical on this one, Chris. This is the holy grail. This, this, if they can do it, this makes AI not at all a buzzword anymore. This makes it real. I could see that if if the devices could think faster mm-hmm. and it was safer in terms of privacy, because it's interestingly enough, and I think you've probably noticed this too, there is a very large percentage of the market that will just never buy a Amazon tube or a Google tube. Because of privacy reasons, like it's become a thing people think of more, not as pervasive as I would like, but there is a large section of the market now that does worry about privacy. Sure. And if you could say sort of like what Apple leans into, if you could say instead of uploading this to the cloud to process, we're doing this on your device locally and now it's faster and more secure and safe from hackers or whatever, you know, they could they could really play it up. Put a Guy Fox mask on the commercial. I could see it. Yeah, I, that would appeal, I think. It would appeal not only to people like me who have already accepted the tube in the house, even though it does concern me, but it would also appeal to people that had been previously opting out of certain quote-unquote smart products. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I wasn't thinking of the consumer space, but that's a great point. Um, I, ha- I actually have right now have a, a customer who works in the agriculture space, and they have giant like stalks of produce, right, like growing produce, and that creates a really stupid problem. Wi-Fi signal is unable to penetrate the mass. <laughs> they can't, it can't get through the fruit? <laughs> can't get through, right. Can't get through the fruit. So we had to do all these like insane like local caching stuff and to reintegrate with the whole system. Something like this would be awesome, right? And I could think of over the years at least a dozen scenarios where like my main problem was the, the client had a, either the space was too vast, it was outside spotty cell signal or they, the devices they were using didn't have cell connection because remember not everything is an is an ipad or android app right so i would be super hot on this if if it worked 
and if it had an objective c sdk Ah, you got it in there. Or I'll settle for Rust. How about that? <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah, that'll be the new that'll be the new go-to. This is to me, and this is maybe why I was a little skeptical on my take of the AI stuff, is I think really not so much about the high end of the market, but it's really about NVIDIA now getting in the low end of the market. Because they kind of own the high end, especially with their GPUs. And they don't really have much of any play in the low end, like IoT devices, like I was talking about, or router devices, networking devices. They have all of this area they can expand into. Now, what's interesting about this deal is that ARM will essentially operate as a as a separate entity. There will be a subsidiary of NVIDIA with supposedly their own command structure separate from NVIDIA. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Okay, yeah. Yeah, that $40 billion was for no influence, right? <laughs> uh, of course, they'll be able to license to themselves as much as they like, but I would imagine they're also going to now be taking the revenue over from that uh, from the existing licensees, including folks like Apple, which you wonder what that deal's going to look like now. I think NVIDIA is going to focus a lot on kind of pushing down into that market, maybe even if we're lucky, bringing up the capabilities. But without a doubt... This just clearly makes NVIDIA one of the most significant players in tech now. Yeah, I mean, they were they weren't a slouch to begin with. Right. But we could see a future where when, you know, you rattle off the big tech, the big five, when you're rattling through Amazon and Microsoft and Apple, there may be a future now where NVIDIA is in that list. It's not there yet, but it it may get there because think about think about the dominance of the ARM CPU, especially if they can combine it with some of their technology and the reach. If they play this right, they could achieve yeah. Uh, it, it seems like a lot of upside for them. If they don't blow it. Tough dungies for Intel? <sighs> yeah. Man, right as they're just not getting their act together either, right? I mean, woof. And AMD's starting to make inroads into the laptop market. That's a rough time. You also wonder if it will have a knock-on effect to Risk Five or Open Power PC. Could we see some renewed community interest or company interest in those platforms as sort of a hedge? You had me at Power PC. I, I tell you what, man, I miss it. I loved the PowerPC architecture. Ah, that's a that's a statement. Okay, really? I no, I did. I one of my favorite things to do for a long time was to get old PowerPC Macs and run Yellow Dog Linux on them and and Debian and Yellow Dog. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. To also run that on a PS3, if I recall correctly, as I did. Yep. <laughs> and so did the Air Force. So. <laughs> really? Yeah, a lot of them. Yeah. Weird. That's <laughs> weird and random. I mean, there's other Linux boxes one could have, you know. <laughs> yeah, at the time though, the PS3 was like, this is not my personal experience, but it's a it was a widely publicized uh, story at the time. It was the most cost effective, powerful Linux box they could buy, so they just called Sony. And we're like, we need two hundred of those. Right, it had like that cell processor, which was PowerPC based, and yep. Well, one last hot take while we're in the hoopla. Uh, this is over at Matt K. Lads. I'm not sure uh, blog. And we'll link for the full read, but it's a take I think I can get on board with. And the headline is, your language sucks, it doesn't matter. And the central thesis is that the actual programming language, the syntax, the semantics, the paradigm, it it doesn't really matter. What matters is the characteristics of the runtime, roughly what it does with memory of running processes, and what does all of that look like. That's the, the core thesis is, and I feel this way too about like not just programming languages, but I also feel that way about Linux distributions. Like, all Linux distributions suck, and also all Linux distributions are are great. It's just really how you use it and what you're familiar with and the tools you know. 
And, and honestly, that's kind of my hot take on, on operating systems to a lesser extent as well. Yeah, I think this guy makes a great point. It's back to our classic, the right tool for the job. Now, I'm, I'm curious on your, your operating system thing. When you say operating system, do you mean like Linux distros or like Mac, Linux, Windows, whatever? All of the above, but I did I did mean the actual, you know, predominant like Linux, Windows, Mac. But I feel that way about distros as well. I, I can I can just switch distros and it's great. It's just some have other advantages that work better for me. And it's like tools, right? It's it's like I just got a rigid drill set. I looked at a lot of different drills and I almost didn't go with rigid. But I was I was I was gifted a couple of batteries and I'm like oh, I got these batteries and we can get these chargers and I you know and, and so I went with that tool. Now people listening to this who don't like rigid drills might think oh you shouldn't have done that, but it, you know for me it, it, that's what fit my use case. They all have pluses and minuses. That's my wisdom for you, Mike. It's wisdom. That is pretty wise. <laughs> Wait, you, have you been like meditating in a monastery or something? I think it's the drive through the mountain passes. Mm, you know, true. Maybe it's all the uh, tree smoke. Just to tie in, at the end of his article, he has some uh, four takes, or five takes, rather. His first one, he expects Rust to be a major language. A fun fact, their Rust consultancy might be related, but I agree. Can I just say I had no idea when this link ended in the show notes that he had a Rust tie-in? That's hilarious. What? Yes, it's, it's got this. So uh, he, he writes, first, I expect Rust to become a major language, naturally. Smiley emoji. This needs some explanation. All right, you know what? I'm not doing that, but... Oh, I see. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I see the paragraph you're talking about. Yeah, but he says he argues the memory safety is a runtime property, despite the fact that it is, uh, uniquely to Rust, achieved exclusively via language machinery. Yeah, it's it's not really a runtime property. It's a, it's a, it's the language specification, but I see where he's going. Julia becoming popular. Yeah. I doubt that, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't be surprised if Dart grows. You know what? Yeah. Uh, a year ago, I would have said no chance, but I'm seeing a lot of activity on Flutter. Yep. Um, I had Chris Sells on the M. Dominic show, and he's the uh, product manager for Flutter. They've got a lot of cool stuff. They've got the Ubuntu support now, which I know is Linux support, but Canonical partner. So don't you know, leave the hate mail. Um, Crystal, no chance. He's right about that. Swift. Yeah. This is the one I wanted to troll about. Remember when IBM was like, we've got this. We're making the Swift version of a web service. It's going to be an enterprise language. Yeah, that worked, right? Yeah. Huge. <laughs> no. Super huge, popular. Huge. No. <laughs> Which actually is a crying shame. Yeah. I, of course, personally hate Swift, but it's a really good language. And it, 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 its ambition is a little crazy. Like it wants to go everywhere from systems programming to scripting. But it just never got out of the Apple sandbox. You know, things can change. A language can can languish for quite a while, and then all of a sudden get some notoriety. But I mean, I shouldn't put it that way. I shouldn't put it that way. It we're we. I mean, even even just the iOS platform and Apple Mac platform are huge, right? So yeah, I mean, it's getting some play. Let's be honest. But yeah, it's actually a really good read. Although those predictions are fun, but we'll have the link to the whole thing. Yeah, I think the predictions are actually on the whole pretty good. Linode.com slash coder. Receive a $100 60-day credit towards your new account. Linode is the largest independent cloud for developers. You can simplify your cloud infrastructure with their easy virtual machines, tools to develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier than you ever thought possible. Linode also costs 30 to 50% less than the major cloud providers like AWS, Google, or Azure because you receive a, a balance of technology with price and performance ratio that's just right. And with 11 data centers worldwide, 
you're going to find just the right spot to deploy, and you'll rest easy with Linode's built-in monitoring tools. Linode is my cloud hosting provider, and all of the new infrastructure for JB 3.0, yeah, we're putting it on Linode. Where else would we put it? They've really gotten great. I've been a customer for two years, and I have watched them get better and better and better, and now nobody touches them. The largest independent cloud provider. They've been around since before AWS. And when you go to linode.com slash coder, you get a $100 credit for 60 days on a new account. Now, they have shared rigs starting at just $5 a month. But, of course, they have dedicated CPU machines, GPU compute. I mean, you can get seriously powerful and fast infrastructure if you need it. Or deploy something quick and easy for testing or learning. You just got to go to linode.com slash coder. Oh, and one last thing. Linode's hiring. If you go to linode.com slash careers, you'll find out more. But why not start by supporting this show and getting yourself a $100 60-day credit towards your new account by going to linode.com slash coder. And a big thank you to Linode for sponsoring the Coder Radio program. That's linode.com slash coder. Now, here's the hottest of the hot takes this week. Open source is essentially dead. We are living in a post-open source world. There's uh, several links we'll have, but the one of the uh, one of the links that is cited here is quote a tweet that says open source as a community endeavor is falling apart right before our eyes, and being replaced by open source as a big corp enrichment strategy. <laughs> it is mean, but it's been happening for a while. But seeing Mozilla sinking like this is just driving the point home for me, and that's what kicked off this entire conversation. To be frank with you, is the Mozilla layoff situation. And that's what drove this author to write this. A lot of cool people working on important shit, as this author put it. But the consensus that he's seen is that it reflects Mozilla's search for profit over impact, mismanagement, and disappropriate executive compensation. <laughs> he says, this is a trend not only at Mozilla, but it's taking place over the corporatization of open source over the past several years in an ongoing open source sustainability crisis and... COVID-19, the all-consuming crisis that makes other crises worse, has brought this issue up even worse. Uh, it's, like I say, it's hot. It's spicy. This is where I think maybe it resonates a little bit with you. So clear your mind. Open your mind to this. Because he is no fan of the GPL3. And um, I'll get you there. They write, the flagship projects of the free software movement are probably Linux and the GNU pile of tools. The Linux kernel being released under a free software license doesn't directly create more free software. Though, even since things that lie closely to the Linux kernel aren't obligated to also be free software, and of course, user-level applications can have whatever license they want, and also most of the people using Linux right now are using it by accident, distributed as Chrome OS or Android, neither of which is free software. So Linux is a win for the free software movement, but it's a useless win. The GNU user land tools are, for the most part, even more underwhelming. GCC had, as far as I can tell, been basically the C compiler for a while, if you weren't stuck with MSVC or something else. The free software movement were stubborn ideologues with weird priorities. They still had one big technical advantage, but then the GPL3 happened. So big companies like Apple saw new restrictions coming in, at the same time were more aggressive with enforcement, and said, well, shit, we want to base our software on these handy, convenient tools like GCC, but we can't use GPL3 software while keeping our hardware and software as locked together as tight as possible. So they started pouring money into a new C compiler, LLVM, that was instead open source, not free software. And LLVM became at least as good as GCC, and less risky decision for big companies and easier to build new languages. 
So the free software's last technical advantage was gone. His social advantages also kind of went up in flames with the GPL3. The free software movement in the end burned itself out by fighting for tiny crumbs of success and then turning around and lighting that success on fire. The death of free software tells us that we can't use a license to trick corporations into sharing values, our values. They want to profit. And if good software has a license that puts a limit on how much they can do that, they'll put more resources into writing their own alternative than they would spend complying with the license in the first place. So in his mind, especially in the world of big cloud services, eh, this is done. It's over. Like the, the ideologue movement didn't work and free software is done. Well, uh, okay. So maybe I'm on the short bus today. Is he claiming that open source is gone or dead or something or has failed? Or is he claiming that like FOSS has failed? Because it's two different things, right? Free software versus. A little bit of both. I think the, I think he's trying to make the case or they, I think it's a he, is trying to make the case that both have failed. We couldn't get companies on a moral uh, uh, basis and we couldn't get them on an open source license that tricked them into not making too much money because they just bypassed both. And so the only kind of license that works is something that's essentially I opt to revoke your permission to use it anytime I deem. Uh, he has a quote, uh, a license that's a F around and find out license. Thaffle for short. The license reads the software shall be used for good, not evil. The original author of the software retains the sole and exclusive rights to determine which uses are good and evil. Yeah, no one's going to go for that. I know. Get, get out of here. That's get it out of here. What about <laughs> What about the premise? What about the premise that almost no license is better than a license in this new in this new world we live in? Almost no. So so no license the default would be proprietary. Or, or are we saying like a public domain? I think it'd be up to you, you know, for your software. The default might be proprietary with, or the default could be something like this, uh, share, and I, I I, don't think anybody would go for a license that says I choose to revoke it for any reason at any time. Yeah, no, of course not. It's, so it's kind of, it's, yeah, you're right. It's kind of a... Who would write software for a, for anything where someone can just come in and say we don't like you anymore and throw you off the platform and then remove a sign-in feature from you? Oh, wait, what are we talking about again? <laughs> so this is what I... So this right here, what you just touched on, is what I keep coming back to. And what this, I think what this article got me thinking about is this almost does kind of seem like an unsolvable problem in a way. But what, but what is the problem? <laughs> well, in theory, the problem is large company uh, X... Uh, comes in, decides to use your code to make millions and millions of dollars and never gives you a dime. Got it. So effectively, AWS and Azure are rolling around with making lots of money on Linux. And the Linux Foundation has to go cap in hand and, and, and get some shekels from them. That's what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, essentially, that's it. And then, of course, that doesn't really trickle down to projects. So it's still the developers that are actually burning the midnight oil, making the software uh, actually possible are really not reaping any of the benefits at all. All right. So I'm going to make you even sadder then. Okay. Remember, there was a hero in this category. Every And we had this argument years ago when I was full, like, stupid, you know, do everything proprietary. Someone will find the clip. I'm sure you threw it right back at me. Well, Red Hat's making tons of money, man, and they're open source. Oh, wait. <sighs> Everybody has failed. Right. Canonical is like maybe the exception to this. But again, they have effectively become a consulting company. Sorry to all our friends at Canonical. Well, I mean, it's not a bad thing. But see, the way I look at it is it's all kind of open source by default now. 
I mean, I think I think there is a a fair observation being made here. Certainly, the spirit of free software is just like dead, right? But merging them together into open source and free software, how could you be open and good and not have the big companies like want to use your stuff? That's what I'm saying. That seems to be the catch twenty two of it, but. Maybe it's enough that a small core group of technology enthusiasts care about this and advocate for these things. And maybe that's. Yeah, but what are they advocating for? Well, at least contributing code improvements back. Well, I, I, I think to to be like slightly fair to the our, our glorious corporate overlords in the open source community, <laughs> Microsoft does commit code back to Linux kernel and a number of other projects, right? Canonical, it does. A lot. And I see people, I, you know, it, I knew someone was going to say open core. I knew it was coming. Conan, kudos. Kudos to you, sir. Well, here's my question, though, is does it work out in the wash? Like maybe some projects suffer and other projects no. grow and become funded and get developer time. And it all kind of comes out in the wash, even though some projects are left behind. I don't know if we can say that. Let's try to think of a company who is even like maybe not like Microsoft level, right? But like maybe a couple tiers down that is open source and making money and is not having their lunch eaten by AWS. And the one in the chat room that inspired that point is maybe it's Sues, but that has more to do with the fact that nobody willingly uses Sues. <laughs> and they, they affect, and the DOD happens to like really like Sues because you have to have a vendor thing. Oh, and Germany, right. The Germans <laughs> love suit, right. Yeah, well, that tells you everything. I love you, Germans. I love you. Their model is to sell you an insane enterprise like maintenance contract. Yeah. I, I hate to be Debbie Downer and please do, uh, you know, coder.show. There's a form there. Go ahead and send feedback if you can think of one. But Chris, can you? I can't really. I mean, to me, it seems like fundamentally, this has always been the way it's worked. Now we see it because... I think it's more pronounced with the scope and scale and revenue size of these companies. So it's really in our face because they're like, in some cases, the freaking back end of the Internet, essentially. And so it's just egregious. If you look at people who make a ton of money on open source, I, I mean, it's not it's not, it's not a big list. Uh, and I think ton of money is going to have to be pretty relative. Maybe upper middle class in the United States is probably what's I mean, I don't know. Maybe Linus is worth. A billion dollars. I doubt it, though. I bet he's got some money, right? I'm sure he's doing real comfortable and anybody would be thrilled to be in that position. But he's not rolling in like Tim Cook money or even probably Johnny Ive money or Phil Schiller money. Yeah. According to the Googs, his net worth is $150 million. So not even not even close. I wonder what Johnny Ive's net worth is or Phil Schiller's, right? Or or, or even Sachi Nadella. Not that Sachi Nadella hasn't made a good contribution, but let's let's be clear. It's not at the scale of Linus Torvald's contributions. All right, so how would you solve the problem then? I don't know if there is a solution. I think in part it's people dedicating themselves to just furthering software development. And sometimes the reward isn't monetary. and Sometimes it is. And I think people may know that bargain when they go in. Again, this is like, remember a couple of years ago, the hotness was open core, right? Yeah. Because of this problem, if you did something purely open source, literally AWS or whoever would come in and just eat your lunch if it was even promising at all. And it's essentially what's still happening. <laughs> and, and that also failed. So, yeah, you know. Yeah. 
Although, you know, if it's under the ocean, maybe it doesn't matter. This is kind of neat. Um, just as we're kind of sitting down to record today, Microsoft announced that their underwater data center has resurfaced after two years. The data center has been retrieved from the ocean floor. It was covered in barnacles and all other kinds of underwater crap, as you might expect. But here's some interesting details. Their first conclusion so far is that the cylinder packed with servers under the ocean, yes, under the ocean, had a lower failure rate than a conventional data center. When the container was hauled off uh, the seabed, and then um, it was at about a half a mile out offshore, so it was underwater, about a half a mile out. It was placed there in May of 2018. Only eight out of 855 servers failed. Quote, our failure rate in the water is one-eighth of what we've seen on land. This is according to Ben Cutler, who is the lead Microsoft uh, project guy on this. And he says our failure rate is probably lower in part because we use nitrogen rather than oxygen. So there's less corrosion. But also, no doubt about it, it's got to be because there was less humans <laughs> bumping into stuff. <laughs> it's really neat when you see the pictures in the show notes. It's a tube with racks in it. It's just they straight up threw a whole bunch of racks of uh, servers, one new servers in these racks. And they even have KVM crash carts <laughs> on them. And they don't know if this is going to turn into a product for Microsoft, but they say it could have potential. You know, ima imagine um, a, a natural disaster and a region's telco infrastructure goes out or whatever it might be, a big, bolt, big old boat could come in and drop this thing off the shore half a mile and you run fiber out to this thing and now you've got infrastructure on demand. That could be powerful. I am so excited about this. So this is my X-Files, the lone gunman hackety hack solution. Things are going bad. You toss a bunch of armed servers from NVIDIA to a capsule right down the bottom of the ocean. And, and you know what? Hopefully future aliens will find our technology and still not be able to make money on open source. Oh, <laughs> Microsoft says they think they're past uh, the point where it's a science experiment. Uh, now the question is how much they want to engineer this. They want to make a small scale one, a large scale one. I'm thinking what, what needs to happen is a bunch of uh, Bitcoin billionaires need to come together and purchase a few of these and sprinkle the blockchain around the bottom of the ocean. Never tell the Bitcoin people about this. <laughs> They're like, hmm, water cooling with the whole ocean, huh? Well, <laughs> oh, you're right. <laughs> Boy, you're right. OK, mum's the word on this one, everybody. Don't tell the Bitcoiners. <laughs> all right. All right. Hot, hot prediction. Hot prediction. Here we go. Who buys the island just to dunk servers within the territorial boundaries underwater first? Amazon or Microsoft? Hmm. Whoever's going for that sweet, sweet China contract first. is <laughs> <laughs> Right off the South Pacific, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> yep. Also, just a special thank you to the Coder QA team. Thank you, everybody who's been going to CoderQA.co to sign up. If you become a member, you get a limited ad feed. You support the show. And you'll get that quarterly, quarterly exclusive content. <laughs> and we just appreciate the support. Helps keep the show sustainable at coderqa.co. Also, if you know somebody who might enjoy the show, consider sharing it with them. Absolutely, no doubt about it, 100% word of mouth is the only form of podcast marketing that actually works. So if you know someone who may have enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with them because we might just get a new listener. Mr. Dominic, is there anything you'd like to plug? I know the, the job posting we had mentioned last week did get posted. Yep, yep, we're hiring a Python developer. Um, no, not really. I'd say just follow me on Twitter, at Tumanuko, and uh, I swear to God I will ship this Rails app at some point. 
And you know what? Uh, drop a link like in the chat or somewhere, and I'll grab it and I'll put it in the show notes for the job posting, so people can can find that if they're looking for it. Will do. I am at Chris Las on the Twitter. Uh, you can also find my personal website, ChrisLast.com. Check out the new logos hitting the show art and the Jupiter Broadcasting website rolling out over the next week. That's pretty exciting. And um, that's pretty much all I have to plug. Maybe I'll just say you can find the show at Coda Radio Show on Twitter, too. And links to everything we talked about today, Coda.show slash 379. Oh, I know what I'll say. Last but not least, consider joining us. We'd love to have you join us live over at JBLive.tv. We do this show at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. Thanks so much for joining us. See you right back here next week. <laughs>